So, Brian Windhorst, the NBA that is starting back up on Thursday is a very different NBA than the one we remember just a few weeks ago because of the trade deadline. And I bring you here, not just because we always love having you, but also because you tend to be a guy who knows things, who, as we saw this past summer, uh, feels the tremors in the ground that sometimes become memes. Did you foresee the degree of change that the trade deadline brought? No, because I thought that the Nets would probably try to hold it together because they had such a really good end of November and December. Yeah. I thought they would give it one last run. And they had gone through so much drama, Pablo, to hold that roster together over the summer. And they pulled the ripcord. They simply reached the point where they couldn't take any more and within a couple of days broke down something that they had spent years building up. We see this happen in pro sports, but it is kind of a melancholy thing, even if it creates a frenzy because it represents the failure of a long-term project and a failure in this case that seems to be avoidable but certainly helped reshape the league in the middle of the season. Yeah, I mean, one ripcord is pulled, a parachute is released, and it alights upon Phoenix, which says what to you about where this is all headed now? Well, it was a fascinating moment in Phoenix because I don't think in the 76-year history of the NBA we've ever seen something happen like an owner buying a team and then the same day making the biggest transaction in the history of the team. (laughs) It was wild. And you hear about new owners being reactionary and over-aggressive and making the assumptions that they can come in and just change everything. And I'm sure that Matt Ishbia heard all of those things. I'm sure that he took counsel from people who said, Be careful with how much you change in the first couple of months or the first year. And he looked at that and said, hold my beer because I'm about to do the wildest move a new owner has done within 12 hours of transferring my billion dollars. The NBA is a study in chain reactions, many of which we have chronicled on this podcast. Like the fact that in November of 2021, our colleague Baxter Holmes published a bombshell investigation into the broken workplace culture of Robert Sarver's Phoenix Suns. And here we are now, 15 months later, and those same Suns have a new billionaire owner. And that dude just went out and apparently gave the Brooklyn Nets whatever they wanted for Kevin Durant. So today... We asked Brian Windhorst to take us behind the scenes in Brooklyn and Phoenix as those dominoes very quickly started falling and how that power dynamic also helps explain why Russell Westbrook is staying in Los Angeles. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, and this is ESPN Daily. So, Brian, you mentioned the name Matt Ishbia. And Matt Ishbia, the new owner of the Phoenix Suns, who replaced Robert Sarver, the man who acquired, in his first act, Kevin Durant. 
Take me inside how this happened. Introduce me to this man that is suddenly reshaping the NBA. Yeah, so he is young by a billionaire standards, Pablo. He's in his early 40s. Basketball junkie. Was a walk-on at Michigan State when the Spartans won the national championship in the year 2000. And over the last 20 years has built a mortgage empire. United Wholesale Mortgage, which is based near Detroit, and became an overnight billionaire. And really ever since then has been desperate to buy a pro sports team. Tried to buy the Denver Broncos. Billions of dollars were burning a hole in his pocket, Pablo. (laughs) And he finally found a taker when Robert Sarver uh, put the team up for sale and um, went through the process and couldn't get his hands on the team fast enough. Yeah, I do love, first off, that there was like a Brewster's Billions aspect to this. He had to spend the billions somehow. He ended up spending it on the Suns. And I do also like that this is a guy who made his fortune in mortgages because he has mortgaged the future of this team for the present, it feels like. Or is it how you see this? Because how does a deal for Kevin Durant of this scope, of this size, get brokered because we just don't see stuff like this happen very often. Right. Well, this was a closed negotiation. Kevin Durant went to the Nets on Monday of trade deadline week and said, I'd like to be traded and I'd like only to be traded to the Phoenix Suns. So there wasn't a bidding war. And I think that Phoenix's front office was aware of this and wanted to be judicious in how they handled the negotiation. The Nets, meanwhile, they still had some measure of leverage, Pablo, because Durant has three years left on his contract. And so if they couldn't find a trade, you know, Kevin would have to report back to the team and and continue the season. And so um, they basically did what they did last summer, which was ask for an outrageous trade package and say they weren't going to negotiate. Right. The other bidder in the process, in other words, was just the status quo, which is just fine in terms of making a playoff run as it looked like this team with Kevin Durant was going to do. Right. And it was also the status quo for Phoenix. That was the other side of it for them. And they've had a bit of a disappointing season at this point, largely due to injuries. And so they asked for a a preposterous, you know, price point, to be honest with you, for a player who's in his mid 30s and frankly was injured at the time. Uh, And And remains so, but we'll get to that, yeah. Yeah. These are the kind of talks that went nowhere last summer. Teams would call the Nets, and the Nets would say, I want your two or three best young players, all the draft picks you can trade me, and and I'm not going to negotiate. And so last summer, Durant hung out there on the market because nobody was willing to do this, Pablo. They... They're like, you're not trying to trade them. You're, you know, you're not taking a, a stance that gives us a place to find a deal. And so talks went nowhere. And so the Nets did the exact same thing. Only this time, they were the ones who made the call. They made the call to the Suns. Mm. Um, and it was basically like, look, we want uh, your two best young players, which are Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson. And we want all the draft picks you can trade us, which were four uh, unprotected first-round picks and one pick swap. 
I want to understand that when you say this is a call directly between the Nets and the Suns, who is on the call here? How does this actually work in real terms? In this case, Pablo, the owner, Joe Sy, called Matt Ishbia, mm. um, who had not actually transferred the money for the team. The, the team on that Monday was approved for the sale. Um, the other 30 teams uh, voted, and he got 29 yeses and one abstention, which was his mortal enemy in the mortgage business and Detroit oh, um, business rival, <laughs> Dan Gilbert from the Cleveland Cavs, who abstained. Uh, but essentially, on that Monday, it was known that he was going to get the team. So that having happened the same day as Durant's trade demand, Matt gets a call from Joe on his cell phone, and he says, hey, I know you've got the team for about 15 minutes here, but would you be interested in trading for Kevin Durant? And Matt Ishbia said, you're damn right I'm interested in trading for <laughs> Kevin Durant. And so from there, like, what does the next step look like? Because it's also, I assume at some point, like the GMs, the front offices of these teams get involved. And at some point, the sticker shock must set in, right? Right. So Sean Marks, the general manager of the Nets and James Jones, the president of the Suns, do the negotiation. And the ask comes and it's like, look, four first round picks, no negotiation. Pick swap, no negotiation. Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, no negotiation. <laughs> so James Jones, having been around the NBA for two decades, tries to negotiate <laughs> and spends a couple of days going back and forth with Sean Marks about, you know, trying to move, move him off, trying to get maybe one last draft pick. Really trying, Pablo, not to trade Mikhail Bridges because the Suns felt like that was the untouchable piece mm. that, you know, they would love to have Bridges to be part of this, this newly formed team to be a core member. They just didn't want to give him up. So over the ensuing two days, the negotiations sort of play out. Uh, Ishbia transfers $2.28 billion for 57% of the Suns, buying out Robert Sarver and some of his partners. Um, that money transfers on Tuesday. Wednesday morning, he gets up in Detroit with his family. They board a private jet, fly to Phoenix, he goes in and meets his new employees. Um, he's the full owner because the money's transferred. Everything's been signed. He's got the keys, so to speak, to the franchise. He goes and says, hey, it's great to see all of you. We're going to do big things. You have no idea how big we're going to do big things. And has one of those typical press conferences where he's, I'm going to bring a championship to the Valley. And then he goes out and does something that could absolutely bring a championship to the Valley. He left the press conference that he, that he did and went to the Suns practice facility and he sat with James Jones. They were less than 24 hours from the trade deadline and they were really drilling down on this Durant trade. And they, they went over a whole bunch of things, including, you know, the Suns front office guys saying, hey, um, you know, we love Kevin Durant. We'd like to do this deal, but we just want, you know, to take a deep breath here and realize that we don't have to do it right now. We can do it later. We can do another deal. Just we just we want you to be comfortable. We don't want you to to, to do all this on your first day. Yeah, learn where the bathrooms are first, and then maybe yeah, make a transaction that's going to cost what in terms of like additional luxury tax. 
almost $40 million, between 30 and $40 million, <laughs> depending on how you do it. And the Suns as an organization had only paid $14 million in the previous 20 years. Total, $14 million total. The exact opposite in terms of mindset, in terms of spending, then yes, right. this new guy seems to be. But Ishbia really wants Durant. And one of the things that he is he's, he's saying to himself as much as he's saying to the Suns front office guys is like, look, I know that this is crazy on my first day, but I could be the owner here for 20 years and it never get a chance to trade for a top five player like this. It just so happens that the opportunity is coming on the first day. It doesn't mean it's an opportunity that should be passed by. And so they call the Nets and say, okay, we're meeting your demands. And the Nets say, great. Now toss in Jay Crowder and the deal is done. <laughs> and the Suns say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? We have another deal for Jay Crowder. Yeah, we agreed to not right. negotiate. I thought that was the deal. Right. We're going to trade Jay Crowder to the Milwaukee Bucks. We've been talking to him about it for months. We find they're going to have a deal. It's gonna. We're going to get five second-round picks for him. And uh, we're going to do a separate deal. We need those draft picks to help build out our team because we're trading everything else. No negotiation, Jay Crowder or no deal. So breakdown in talks, one of those classic walk away from the table. I don't know if it would, if, uh, if anybody hung up in anger, but it wasn't in a good place. And the, the trade was off. And meanwhile, Matt and Justin uh, Ishpia are expected at this celebratory dinner at this hotel, this beautiful hotel in Scottsdale it's Super Bowl week. It's everybody's in town. He's got a whole bunch of people to celebrate because Pablo, he just bought an NBA team <laughs> <Yes>. that day. <laughs> he just <laughs> you spent know? over $2 billion on something. He wanted to right. yeah, maybe toast to it. Yeah. So James Jones says, okay, we're going to make a different deal. We're going to trade for John Collins from the Atlanta Hawks, who is a high-quality player. He's not Kevin Durant, but certainly... Sure. Right. Certainly uh, an electrifying athlete. Certainly would have been a major trade to upgrade the Suns ahead of the trade deadline. So they call the Hawks. It was going to be a three-team trade with the Wizards. They make progress down the line. The Hawks, who have been in negotiations to trade John Collins for more than a year... They think they've got a deal. Meanwhile, over at the hotel restaurant, Matt Ishbia is thinking about this. You know, John Collins is right there. You know, they're texting him. He's, he's stepping out to take calls. Like, they can have John Collins right now. Big upgrade for their roster. But he keeps telling himself, Pablo, top five player. How many times do you get to trade for a top five player? So you've already paid $4 billion for the team. <laughs> You're already trading away your whole future drafts. Is Jay Crowder and five second round picks really going to stop you? <laughs> and the Nets didn't think so. And at the end of the day, Matt Ishbia said, we got to do this. We're going to do it. And so James Jones said, okay, if that's what you want to do, I support you. I think Durant will be great here. Chris Paul will be excited. Devin Booker will be excited. Monty Williams, the coach, will be excited. Meanwhile, back in Brooklyn, the Nets had given up for the night. They thought, well, they're, you know, 
we're holding our ground and the sons haven't agreed. And so um, they were driving to a hotel, you know, during the trade deadline week, the Nets front office uh, stays in a hotel in Brooklyn so that they can stay close together because they all live farther outside the city. They were in the car back to the hotel, the Nets front office. And uh, Sean Marks was uh, driving and um, uh, the phone rang and he answered it. And it was Matt Ishbia saying, all right, you have a deal. And just like that, the Nets rebuild was in progress and Durant was the son and almost everything that the Suns have going forward was with the Nets. This team in Phoenix, as you said, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Aiden, um, as their, their four main pieces there, the expectations seem to me to be, you make the NBA Finals or this is embarrassing. How do you see it? Yeah, um, the amount of skin they have in the game is immeasurable because they now have two players in their mid-30s, late 30s for Chris Paul's sake, um, and they're basically banking on this working. This is as good of a chance as they've ever had, and they are going to have a devastating uh, offensive attack. Uh, Devin Booker on one wing, Kevin Durant on the other. Um, Absurd. An absolute, you know, clinical uh, attacker in Chris Paul who always makes the correct decisions with the ball. And DeAndre Ayton, who is not maybe the most elite at his position, but is a devastating screen setter and totally designed to play a spread pick and roll style where Chris Paul can attack and find Durant and Booker. And now they'll be able, when Durant rests, Booker will be on the court. When Booker rests, Durant will be on the court. So they are outfitted, Pablo. And if they're healthy, they should have enough. They should have enough to go for this championship. Coming up, the postmortem on the greatest dynasty that never was. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Brian, I'm still confused, admittedly, about everything in Brooklyn because earlier this month, Kyrie Irving demanded a trade of his own again, and he got sent to the Mavericks. And yes, his teammate and friend Kevin Durant got traded very shortly thereafter, But the question I am still wondering about, which has a newfound resonance in Dallas, is whether Kyrie Irving was acting alone. Or were Kyrie and Kevin Durant coordinating all of this together in some way in concert with each other? Sounds like they were not. And if that is indeed the case, it's a pretty remarkable series of events. Yeah. Because 
as we've talked about in the past, Kevin Durant chose to come play for the Nets with Kyrie Irving over some really other potentially attractive opportunities. Um, he could have stayed in Golden State. Kawhi Leonard wanted to play with him with the Clippers. Mm. And LeBron James wanted to play with him on the Lakers. And if he didn't go to the Nets, he could have gone to the Knicks. And he bypassed all those to join with Kyrie Irving. And then a couple of years later, extended his contract long with no contract opt-out to stay with Kyrie Irving. Yes. And what was the fascinating move at the very end, you know, the Nets had won 18 out of 20 games at one point, um, really showing their teeth and looking like they had a real chance. Oh, they were looking good. Brian, they were at the point where everybody was ready to consider them uh, that ultimate cliche, the team that nobody wants to face in the playoffs. Right, which they've kind of held that designation before and not lived up to it, but Correct. it was definitely coming again. And so Kevin Durant suffered a knee injury, an unfortunate freak knee injury. So it was a setback, but certainly not a derailment. And Kyrie Irving really played well in the in the time that Durant was away. He did. Uh, recovering. I mean, averaged over 30 points. And this is where something very interesting happened. Kyrie had a couple of choices. He could have just continued doing what he was doing, but he decided to make a leverage move. And he and his agent approached the Nets and said, I would like to sign a contract extension right now. He was looking for a four-year max. Um, and he certainly has proven to be a max player. But the four-year part was the Nets couldn't go there last summer and they couldn't go there now. Yeah, for, I'm just going to gesture, for reasons having to do with, I don't know, the half dozen podcasts we've done about Kyrie Irving before this one. Yes. Right. And I think I think the Nets' position was that they were open to keeping Kyrie, but that they didn't feel like there was an appropriate time to to do that. They wanted to make sure the season ended on a positive note because, you know, they had only really been drama-free with Kyrie for about uh, six or seven weeks. It wasn't like it had been six or seven months, much much less a year. And Kyrie elected to use that leveraging situation to demand a trade, basically to say either pay me or trade me. Mm. And if we take Kevin Durant at his word, this demand caught him by surprise. And I'm not sure why this was the last straw after all of the, 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 the times that have come before it where Kyrie has put the Nets in a difficult position. This was different. Teams knew within within hours they could tell by the way that they were talking this time around that they were serious they were going to trade him. And they did. Within 48 hours of the trade request, he was traded to the Dallas Mavericks. And they had to know, Pablo, just as they knew last summer, if they acquiesced to Kyrie's demands, that Durant would probably be coming down the hall shortly thereafter. And so when Durant did, in fact come in for a meeting within 48 hours of the Kyrie trade. Mm. It upset them, but I don't think it stunned them. I think they knew the day was coming. Maybe they hoped it was coming in the summer. And so that was it. But the idea, Brian, that this whole grand experiment essentially died as it was born with these two future Hall of Famers calling all of the shots, that does seem telling to me. And it does seem to speak to the crossroads that this franchise had found itself at before they got here. 
with where the team was when Sean Marks took over, which was um, in the basement without control of their draft picks, they were basically playing to help stock the Celtics. They really had no choice but to bite the bullet and, and fight their way through it to building a team that had Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden on it with the intention to stay together. The extreme climb to that mountaintop was so hard and so remarkable and and such an accomplishment in so many ways. Ultimately, you don't win titles for having press conferences with star players that you've acquired. But boy, is it usually the path to get there. It just didn't happen. And so to crush it all down um, for the Nets, even though they feel like they did get a ransom for Durant and a reasonable haul for Kyrie considering that he has only got a few months left on his contract. It was a very melancholy feeling in Brooklyn. It was a stress relief because the the world that they lived in for the last few years with Kyrie um, was gone. Uh. But that stress relief, it doesn't do you any good when you're in the playoffs and you're home. And the Nets are probably going to be home in the playoffs earlier than they would have been if they hadn't have done this. No, look, in the postmortem of all of this, on the players' side of things, Kyrie Irving has said, I'm glad he got out of there about Kevin Durant. Get to see him a little bit more, probably playing against Phoenix a lot more, and uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. Everything else in, in between, uh, I just am glad that uh, he got out of there. James Harden now seems to be puffing his chest out some, as he is in Philly now. And he is saying, look, I didn't just ask to leave for no reason. Essentially pointing at the front office and saying, look at this dysfunction. There's a lot of dysfunction. Uh, clearly. But there was a lot of internal things that I'm not, for me, I'm not going to ever just say or put in the media or do anything. And that was one of the reasons why, you know I mean, I chose to make my decision. But if you're the coroner here, Brian, what was the cause of death here? in terms of this grand project? Well, we don't have all the information. There's some reason that Kyrie must believe that he was wronged. He referred to it several times, and that information is not apparent. But for some reason, he feels wronged. The problem here was to get these players, to get Kyrie and to get Durant, the Nets essentially made a deal that, they would yield a big part of the control to those players. Mm. And, you know, it's a, it's a deal that I can see most teams in the NBA making. Sure. The opportunity to get those two players to walk in the door, both still in their primes, both willing to sign long-term, you know, willing to recruit other players. They did. Well, Brian, yes, Brian, it's the it's an echo of the terms of the trade that got Kevin Durant out of Brooklyn into Phoenix. At some point, the talent level is so superlative that you say, you know what? I'm going to make an exception here and I'm going to give them what they want. Right. They certainly had huge input in at least one coaching change, mm-hmm. uh, if not two. Um, They definitely guided free agent decision-making, including signing DeAndre Jordan on a $40 million contract when nobody in the NBA was interested in paying him more than a fraction of that. And the concessions just rippled up the line. 
um, to the point where Kyrie Irving felt no qualms whatsoever in front of microphones saying that basically he and Durant were co-running the team. When I say I'm, I'm here with Kev, I think that it really entails us, um, you know, managing this franchise together alongside Joe and, and Sean. And that was not an incorrect statement. And so it was a castle that was built on sand. And it could have worked, Pablo, because Durant and Kyrie are that good. And then when they acquired Harden, the talent level is so high that it could have worked. But the deal that they made to get into and yielding that kind of influence to, to especially someone like Kyrie, whose whims tend to change, probably set the whole situation up not to be successful. And then when some outside stresses happened to Kyrie that were unforeseen by everybody, particularly the pandemic, it was not built strong enough to survive that type of situation. Yeah, no, Brian, you're describing, yeah, a, a, a castle built on sand. And after the break, I want to ask you why it is that Russell Westbrook keeps on washing up on the shores of Los Angeles. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Brian, I just want to add this on to the end of the show here because Russell Westbrook is back in L.A. and he had been shipped out to Utah, but then bought out by the Jazz. And here are the Los Angeles Clippers reuniting Russell Westbrook with Paul George, his former teammate on the Thunder, and keeping him in, yes, the same locker room, <laughs> although with the different decorations as the Clippers tend to uh, like their aesthetics a little different from the Lakers. But how long was this in the works, man? Were you surprised to see this? I mean, this is another example of when star players have incredible say in a franchise's decisions. It was the case in Brooklyn, and it is absolutely the case with the Clippers. And there may be no bigger supporter in the entire NBA of Russell Westbrook 
than Paul George. Um, it dates to their time together in Oklahoma City, where that friendship fostered and they bonded. So as soon as it became clear that Russell Westbrook was going to be on the free agent market after he was traded on deadline day, Paul George started lobbying the team to sign him. There are some schematic reasons why the Clippers can use a point guard. They do not have a plethora at that position. The question is, can they use a point guard like Russell Westbrook, who <laughs> plays with Who isn't of, exactly a classic point guard, you might not say. Not in the modern era. Not in the modern era. No. Westbrook has been sort of dangling on the market for a while here. And Adrian Wojnarowski reported that before the Clippers did this, that there was an understanding reached with Coach Ty Lue and team president Lawrence Frank about the role that Westbrook was going to fill. Now, this is the exact same thing that Darvin Ham did with Westbrook when he was hired as coach of the Lakers last summer, right. where he sort of established a role and, and he kept him in the starting lineup. And then when it was time to take him out of the starting lineup because the team was struggling terribly, there was friction. No, the whole idea here, Brian, is that like the coaches seem to be of the understanding in the NBA in general, it feels like, that Russell Westbrook is not a star anymore, and he is more of the energy guy, the effort guy, the guy that needs to make plays for other people. In the last handful of years, he's been a thunder, he's been a rocket, he's been a wizard, he's been a laker. He was a jazz in, you know, name only. Uh, they did not want to have him on their team, and now a clipper. And when you see a guy pass through that many teams, you know, you start to say, you know, what is the reason for that? His last days with the Lakers were somewhat defined by him being defiant to be taken out of the game. Mm -hmm. You know, his last act as a Laker was really getting into a fight with Darvin Ham about not leaving the floor when he subbed him out. He does have some talents that could help the Clippers, but will he be willing to fit into something that is sort of larger than him? It's not been who he's been most of his career. No. And his future in the NBA really is, is hinging on it. There is some delicious potential here because you know that the Clippers want nothing more than to show the Lakers up. And you have Westbrook who is going to be motivated to do so. And if the Clippers can make it work to sort of take a player the Lakers discarded and make it work. Ooh, would be, I see what you're doing here. Would be interesting. <laughs> um, the other thing is, Instantly, everybody ran to the schedule. They play each other on April 5th, and I promise you that that game is going to be very important for the Lakers trying to establish a playoff berth. And Westbrook will get his chance at a pound of flesh, at least on that night. And so what we're really discussing here is the idea of whether Russell Westbrook, due to maybe spite, spite towards the Lakers, can be convinced to channel his defiance into change. And this is an existential philosophical question at this point. It sounds like that answer is, uh, yeah, it would be an unprecedented one. His career has really kind of mimicked the career of Allen Iverson, um, mm. where Iverson was absolutely at the top of the league pyramid, won an MVP like Westbrook, um, but at the end of Iverson's career, uh, basically after his big contract ended, which is where Russell's now at, his contract is dissolved. 
he just really wasn't comfortable making the changes. What made him great was that he was wired in a certain way that he was able to overcome shortcomings with incredible confidence and an iron will. And those characteristics worked against him when he was faced with a situation where he had to basically alter his career, have it end. And he ended up having a bunch of short stints on various teams really across the world. And they all ended badly at the end. And he ended up being out of the league by the time he was in his early 30s, you know, out of basketball. And, you know, I promise you, I promise you that people in Russell Westbrook's life have discussed this with him and asked him to change. But he is who he is. And um, people love him for it. He has so many fans who love the way he plays. And one of those fans is Paul George. Uh, Ryan Winhorst, thank you for uh, providing the answer that we needed on ESPN Daily. Well done. I am Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.